Well, as I mentioned this morning, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, and I'd like to take about 10 minutes, maybe 15 or so, just to set up what it is that we're, that we're going to look at, what we're going to celebrate. And you know, this is a time that's very special for believers, for Christians. Uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, there is huge significance. The Bible tells us a little bit of what that is, and we'll look at it in a moment. But for others who've never placed their faith in Christ, well, this is just really kind of a time to look in from the outside and, and to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, what the message of the gospel really is. There's a passage in Scripture, actually uh, virtually all of the Gospels cover for us the, the uh, specifics of Jesus' death and his, his crucifixion, his arrest, his trials, the things leading up to his crucifixion. Uh, but th- there's one particular passage in Luke that, that captures something that is really, really interesting when you, when you really see it, when you look at it. And the, the setting is that Jesus has he's already been arrested, he's already gone through the trials, uh, he, or, or he's in the midst of that whole process. And uh, one of his followers, uh, Simon Peter, had, uh, had come up close enough to see everything as it unfolded. Jesus had already made mention that Peter would deny even knowing him, not just once or twice, but three times. And, and there was a point there, ultimately, where all that came together, and Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And the, the gospel writer Luke captures for us, just take a look at this, Luke chapter 22, it captures for us something really interesting that, that stands out. It says, the Lord, this is on the heels of, of uh, Peter as he is denying Jesus, it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You know, Jesus had already told Peter this would happen. He told Peter that three times before the rooster crowed, he would deny even knowing who he was, deny even knowing him or being a follower of him. And at this point, Luke captures for us, all of that comes together. And it says that as, as Peter was in, the, was in the midst of denying Jesus, that at that very moment, obviously Jesus was in earshot of hearing Peter denying even knowing him that he turned and he looked at Peter. And here's a question I want you to wrestle with for just a moment this morning. What kind of a look do you think Jesus gave Peter when he turned and looked at him as, as Peter was denying even knowing him? What, what kind of a look do you think he gave him? I mean, think about that for just a second. Because for some people, they would say, well, I'm sure Jesus probably turned and he probably looked at him and there was fire in his eyes and he was angry and he was spitting mad because he probably looked at Peter and, and without even saying a word, his eyes set enough. He said, how in the world could you do this to me? After everything I've done for you and everything that I've given you and everything that I've made you, this is the best that I get? You, you do this to me to not even knowing me? And some people would say that's the way Jesus looked at him. He looked at him with that kind of an anger. Others would say he looked at him with astonishment. You know, that Jesus, beaten beyond recognition, would hear Peter denying, I don't even know who he is, and he would turn and look, and it would almost be a look of astonishment of, Peter, I expected better than this. How, how in the world? You don't even know me? You know, the way you view in your mind, Jesus looking at Peter is the way you probably view how God looks at you when you fall short. And if you're like me, you fall short a lot. And there are some that when you fall short, your view is that God is spitting mad. It doesn't matter that you prayed and you, you, you gave your life to Christ, you're a follower of Jesus. All you see is a God who every day wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, he's grumpy, he's mad at you, he's angry, the bar is so high you can never attain it, you'll never get there, and he is constantly reminding you of how worthless you are. That's the way you see God, that's the way you view him. Others view God as though he is just completely done with you. You know what, I, I, all this I've done for you, and don't expect another blessing from me. I've saved you, I've forgiven you, I've given you a nice house, a lot of friends, nice family, car to drive, a job that pays the bills. I've given you all this, and this is the best I get. You fall short, you sinned again. 
This is the best I get. You know, don't ask me for anything else. That's the way you look at God. Both of those couldn't be further from the picture we see of God in Scripture. Because here, here's what I believe. I believe when Jesus looked at Peter in that context, after Peter was in the midst of denying him, I believe, and I may be wrong, but I believe Jesus looked at Peter with a look of just brokenness. Not because of himself, but brokenness over Peter. That Peter, after all these years, I didn't expect anything from you because I know what's in your heart. <laughs> I didn't think better of you because I know without me you're nothing. But, but Peter, my heart breaks for you. Because you've, you've missed the opportunity to proclaim the greatest message ever, that I am Lord. You know, God's done some work in me this week. We don't take our medicine all at once, do we? If you go to the doctor, he gives you a 30-day supply of whatever it is that's going to heal, what ails you, right? You don't go home and say, you know, I've got a busy week. I'm going to take all 30 at once. You know, you don't do that. That'll kill you. That's not good. Hear this. This is a disclaimer. I did not recommend that you do that, okay? (laughs) Don't want an email tomorrow. I tried that. Man, I've been sick ever since. No, don't do that. We don't operate that way. What we do is when the doctor gives us something for what hurts us or for what ails us, we take it one day at a time. It's a prescription, one day at a time. There are times that God does work in our lives, and if he changed everything in me, I couldn't handle it. That's why he does one little bit at a time, and he brings to the forefront in my life things that need to be addressed, things that will help me to know him better, things that will keep me from being ineffective in my want with him that'll rob my joy and steal my testimony he brings those things little by little in my life and this week's been one of those and God has kind of opened the floodgate a little bit more maybe the normal but he's helped me to understand you know at at the root of who I am how selfish I am I am an extremely selfish person and there are times even in my own marriage times in my own family and I can say this without trying to impress Susie that's another problem I have is trying to impress people is that is that Susie you know she's home sick this morning so she's not even here but but there are times that I, I just recognize it's like the, the the cover gets pulled back that I'm an extremely selfish person where I put myself over my wife and I put my needs over over my kids and I I put myself before other people and I've been called to do exactly the opposite and I really wrestle with that God's shown me that, that this week. He's kind of peeled back a little bit of a layer to say, Brooks, you know what? You are an extremely selfish individual when left to yourself. And there have been different ways. I won't bore you with the detail. Actually, probably pretty interesting, but I, I won't go there. Um, of how God has just really exposed some things in, in my heart of, of how I can at times even be critical of other ministries and other preachers and other leaders, you know, as though it's a big competition. And God's just kind of opened the floodgates a little bit for me this week. And he's reminded me, that Brooks, you know, it is about the gospel, and the gospel does not only take root and take effect the moment you pray and give Christ, and then it gets put on a shelf. No, the gospel is what makes us who we are over and over, day after day, and it's as we live by the truth of the gospel, not that our deeds make us good with God, or keep us close, but that it's our righteousness in Christ that makes us who we are. That changes everything. And there's a scene in Luke chapter 7 where uh, Jesus is, has been invited to a meal. You know, people who didn't like Jesus liked Jesus. And it was really interesting. He gets invited to a lot of places in the Gospels that um, we would never go to because of who, who goes there. Jesus would go all over the place, and he would spend time with people that didn't know God, didn't have a heart for God. And in one particular occasion, he was in the home of a man named Simon who was a Pharisee. A Pharisee in those days in the first century was one who placed a lot of emphasis on the rules, but they missed Jesus as a result of that. Well, Jesus is having lunch or having a meal in this Pharisee's house. His name's Simon. And uh, a lady from the neighborhood shows up. She had a very checkered past, and she comes in and undoubtedly to see Jesus, not to see the Pharisee. The Pharisee wouldn't ever let her in. 
And, and as she's there, she's overcome with emotion. She begins to express worship to Jesus for who he is. Luke chapter 7 helps us to understand. Look at what it says. He says, turning towards the woman, Jesus, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, he says to Simon the Pharisee, who focused only on the rules. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. You know what I think that, that last paragraph there? You already see the contrast between what, what, what you, Simon the Pharisee, the rule keeper did, and then what she, a person who truly worshipped Jesus for who he was, what she did. But the very last, that phrase, he who is forgiven little loves little, I think there's a point where we have to understand that one of the reasons we don't express worship to God the way that we should, and one of the reasons that our heart doesn't stay engaged with him the way that it should day after day after day, is because we've lost sight of the beauty of the gospel. And we've lost sight of what it means to be forgiven and the depth of what it costs God to forgive us. Because if I do not have the gospel, if I do not have a relationship with God, I'm left to myself. That's a train wreck at best. I, I have no hope in this world. I have no hope in the next world. I have no forgiveness whatsoever. I have no peace. I have no grace. I have no joy. I have no life. And what happens is in this comfortable world in which we live, in comfortable churches like this, we are so easily tempted to lose sight of the depth and the beauty of the gospel. And there are times where we have forgotten what God had to forgive us of. We've forgotten where we would have been had it not been for Jesus who intervened in our lives. And so we don't have that sense, that heavy sense that, man, I am a forgiven individual. God has washed me clean. He has wiped the slate absolutely clean. He has given me a brand new start. He's given me a brand new heart. I have hope in this world, hope in the next world. God has done an amazing work in my life. And we lose sight of that. And because we don't have the sense and the understanding of how greatly we've been forgiven, we have such superficial worship that it perhaps even makes God sick. And it could be so much different. It could be so much more. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Just look at it on the overhead. It shows us the transaction that took place on the cross. It says, He, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Jesus on the cross became your sin. It wasn't just a good man doing a good deed. The Son of God, God himself, became your sin and mine. And there was a reason so that we, those who know him, who've turned from sin and become followers of Christ, might become the righteousness of God in him. Here, here's why... When we walk and base our, our relationship with God on how good we did, here's why that's so wrong. It's because of that verse. And there are times that you may be like me. You feel really close to God when you've had a good week where you've read your Bible and you've prayed a lot and you've done a couple of good deeds. And if you shared your faith with somebody else, man, it's a, great, it's a great week. That's when we ask God for all the good stuff, isn't it? Oh, God, would you just give me a vacation home in the mountains somewhere in some foreign country? Because I've read my Bible every day this week, and I've told people about you, and I gave a little extra in the plate. Did you see that? I put a little in there, you know, because I love you. Woo! And, you know, and that's the way we feel. We base our closeness to God on how good we did, don't we? Don't we? Right? And if we've had a rotten week and it wasn't a good week and we got real busy and we misplaced our priorities and we did some stuff we shouldn't have, I'm not soft-peddling sin because that's never a place. It'll wreck your life faster than anything else. But there are times whenever we don't do exactly what we should do that we don't feel so close to God and we don't pray so much and we don't feel like he's going to be near. We don't feel like he's going to take care of us. We feel like he's angry at us. We feel like he, he's, he's just put off with us. 
We feel like he takes a step back and says, there, how do you like that? Here, why don't you just live another day without me? I'm going to prove a point to you. Here, here, I'm just going to step all the way out of your life. How about that? How do you like that? That's the way we feel God deals with us. But it's not because according to that verse, whenever Jesus died for us, whenever he rose again and we placed our faith in him, we became followers of Christ, his righteousness was credited to our account so that every moment of every day, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you stand in perfect righteousness before God. That is mind-boggling. And he loves you. He loves you more than you can even know. Even when you fall short. Even when you mess up. Even when you sin to his face. If you know him in relationship, he loves you more than you know. We had a big storm, didn't we, this past week, Wednesday night. Man, what a light show that was. Middle of the night, lightning flashing, it all hitting the yard next door to ours, I'm convinced of that. I mean, every time it popped, it sounded like it was right outside our window. Next morning, there were a few tree limbs down, you know, the wind was howling all night long, and just the rain and the thunder, just an impressive display. Well, in the middle of the night, Susie and I both woke up and you know, decided we need to check on the kids. So I went in, in Hannah's room, and she's sleeping, you know, just zonked out like, like her dad usually is, just, you know, sleeping. And I went into April's room, two and a half years old. She's just not, she's sleeping great. And I went into Drew's room, my, my six-year-old little guy, and I walked in there, and he has the sheets pulled all the way up over his head. And he is like a torpedo in his little bed there. And there are times when he does that. I don't know why he does this. But there are times you'll walk in the morning, and boom, the sheets are up over his head, and you're like, Drew, and he's sound asleep. Well, this, this time I walked in, sheets are up over his head, and I said, I said, Drew, are you awake? And he said, he said yeah, I'm scared. And, uh, and I said, son, you need to get up. You're tough. You're kale, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Not a, I didn't do that. <laughs> you know, I, what I did was I spoke to him. And I got in that little twin bed with him. And he's a big six-year-old, and I'm a big 48-year-old, and we don't fit in twin beds too good. But I got in there with him. Not because he had a good week. Not because he displayed respect for me earlier that day. But because he's my child. And I love him with all my heart. As I got in the bed with him, that little twin bed, I turned and I faced the outside I said, you want to put your arm around daddy? And he put his arm around me. He didn't even say anything. He just put his arm around me. And almost immediately, I decided, you know, that's, that's not good enough. I don't want him to hold on to me. I want to hold on to him. And so I turned over, and I threw my arm around him. And that's where I stayed until the storm ended, and he was sleeping peacefully. And I believe that there are times in our lives whenever we face the reality of who we are without Christ, that there are times in our lives when we realize how far we have to go and how much medicine there still is to take to get rid of some of the ugliness that's in us, that there are times that we really lose sight of exactly how impressive the forgiveness of God truly is and how enormous His grace is that fills every crack and every crevice of the life that's yielded to Him. And I'm reminded as well of how often we forget who we are in Christ and whose we are because of him. Jesus had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. It's an amazing thought, that in itself. 
Jesus, 100% God plus 100% man, walked this earth in sinless perfection. And he came to the time when his ministry, his public ministry would begin. And he had had a time of fasting, a drawing close to the Father. And he had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. And it would be the, enemy, it'd be the Spirit of God that would lead him into the wilderness. But it would be the enemy, Satan himself, that would appear and that would begin to tempt him. Knowing that if he could only derail Jesus himself, then his opportunity to be our sinless offering, taking our place, would be... Would, would be short-circuited, that we would have no way of salvation. We find in Scripture, if you read along with me on the overhead, Matthew captures it for us. It says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry, and the tempter came, and he said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. It's an interesting statement because the enemy knew Jesus was the Son of God. The enemy knew that Jesus was 100% God, God's Son, Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The enemy knew exactly who Jesus was. But here at his time of physical weakness, having not eaten or drank for 40 days and 40 nights, he comes and he begins to question him in his identity. And he says, if you are the Son of God. The Son of God shouldn't be hungry. The Son of God shouldn't go without food for almost six weeks. The Son of God shouldn't be living in these circumstances. You deserve better than this. And he begins to question exactly who Jesus was, which was an interesting thing, by the way, because one chapter before, just a few verses before, look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 17, at Jesus's own baptism, As an example for us, it says, Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is God the Father speaking over God the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That staked for everyone to see and hear of who Jesus was. He he was and he is the Son of God. This is my beloved Son, God the Father would say. How interesting it is that when Jesus now... In the wilderness, having not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, facing toe-to-toe the enemy himself, how interesting it is that the enemy would call into question his very identity of who he is. If you're the Son of God, Jesus knew who he was. The Father had already told him, you are my son. Look at what it says in Matthew 4, verse 4. That's why Jesus said to the tempter, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know, for a long time, I thought that verse meant, well, whenever we're tempted, we just need to quote Scripture. And, and that certainly is helpful. That's what Jesus did. I mean, he quoted Scripture as he said that. But he also quoted a verse that nailed down exactly what his identity was. That's why he says that we can't live just merely by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What matters most about who you are is who God says you are. And if you are a follower of Christ, I don't care how your week was, how closely you walked, or even how difficult your trials may have been this week or this month or this year or even longer. What matters most and what's bigger than all that is that there is a God who has already staked his claim to your life if you've given your life to Jesus. And he's already defined who you are. You are his. And nothing can touch what belongs to him. He'll use your struggles to make you stronger. He'll use your trials to pull you closer. And whenever this life is done and you step into the next, you'll be forever grateful for a sacrifice that a Savior named Jesus made that made it all possible. The gospel that took root when you gave your life to Jesus and that still keeps you who you are today. His righteousness in you.
because of a Savior who gave it all. So what brings us to this point in our service, the Lord's Supper. Scriptures tell us how we are to celebrate this. You can just read, listen as I read. It's in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes to a church and he says, That I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You know, in just a moment, we're going to pass the bread and we're going to pass the juice that represent the body and the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. There is nothing magical that takes place as you take the Lord's Supper. This is a time for believers, for those that have yielded their life to Christ. If you've already given your life to Christ, this is a time for you. If not, if you're still thinking about that, but you're not quite there yet, I would ask out of reverence for God's Word and for what we're recognizing as believers, that you just take the plates and pass them on. That, that, that there, we would be grateful for that. But at the same time, we would love nothing more than for you to choose to place your faith in Christ and to become a follower of Christ like so many here have been as well. We're going to do things a little differently this morning as the deacons and some others come to help hand these out. We're going to pass out the bread and the juice together at the same time. You don't have to tell. I'm not going to read any other passage of Scripture. I'm not going to have any other prayer after I pray in just a moment. But we're just going to have a little extended time of worship. And through this worship time, it's an opportunity for you as well just to draw close to the Lord, to pray, to reflect, and to take inventory of your walk. And uh, whenever you're ready, once you have the bread, once you have the juice, whenever you're ready, you take it. And uh, we'll uh, pass these out over the next few minutes. Uh, Nathan will be playing quietly on the piano. Our choir will lead us in a couple of songs as well. And so you take it as you're ready. So I'd like to ask our deacons, if they would, just to slip out and come forward, and those that are helping to serve, if you'll come this time. And I'd like to pray and ask God to bless this time this morning. God, thank you for what we are able to celebrate. Lord, we, we celebrate who you are, that you are our Savior, oh God, that you, Lord Jesus, came and you died for us. And Lord, in that in that event was, was more than just a, just a securing of our salvation. Lord, it's not as though the gospel loses effect after we pray and accept Christ. Lord, it, it takes effect every day of our lives. Lord, it's what makes us who we are, that your righteousness has become ours. And so, God, we thank you through Christ that we are more than conquerors. Thank you that through Christ we have all the love that we need. Lord, that there's not one thing we can do that will make you love us more, and there's not one thing we've done that will cause you to love us less. And we thank you for the, for, the, for the power of what happened on that cross and through that empty tomb 2,000 years ago. And now bless, we pray, as we take this bread and take this juice that represents your body and your blood for us, Lord Jesus. May this be a time that we take inventory and draw close, and we thank you for what you'll do through it. In Jesus' name, amen.